You're listening to the Bridge Christian Fellowship Message Archive. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Seattle. For more information, visit thebridgeseattle.org. Today's message is Ephesians 1, the first in our series on Ephesians, by Pastor Dan Dameron, given on May 21, 2017. Here's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so this morning we are starting a uh, six-week race through Ephesians. So Ephesians is six chapters. We're hitting a chapter a week, and um, I probably don't have to uh, tell you that that means we are not going to be able to really plumb the depths of any of this stuff. Um, But I think... uh, there's, there's still going to be a lot of good stuff we can get even on that, uh, on that quick run through, and maybe someday we'll come back around and spend a whole year on Ephesians or something. So uh, Paul, as it says at the beginning, is the author of Ephesians. Uh, as, a, as a general posture for anybody who comes and listens for the rest of the time that we are a, a church, um, if, if a document in scripture says that it's written by somebody, 
I'm inclined to believe it. Um, and in general, I, I think that the, the tendency for a lot of scholars to, um, to assume that things are uh, written as pseudonyms uh, is just a presupposition that they have. Uh, almost, almost every thing that I've read about when, when they you know, assume, like in, in this case, it's probably about 40% of working biblical scholars in the last hundreds of, 100, 100 years <clears throat> have said that they, they question whether Paul wrote this. And I, I really don't think any of their reasons are at all reasonable. Um, so some of the arguments um, against this, uh, one of the big things is the style of it. They say it doesn't match um, some of the other Pauline epistles. And they also say that there is um, material in Ephesians that is originally in Colossians. So Colossians was written earlier than Ephesians, and Colossians, they say, may not be genuine because uh, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake. Um, but um, Colossians was probably written in about 60 AD when Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake, and uh, Colossae wasn't destroyed by an earthquake until 64. Um, what this tells us is probably avoid Turkey because apparently cities were just being wiped out left and right. Um, but all that to say, uh, it, it, that stuff seems like carelessness to the point of intent when you, you know, just don't notice which city was destroyed when you're making an argument about the authenticity of a document. Um, when it comes to the style thing, uh, one of my favorite commentators is a guy named Ben Witherington, um, and he does a lot with rhetorical analysis of documents, and so a lot of you know that I was a communication major in college, and uh, some of you have made fun of me for that, and communication is a very easy major, but that does not mean that it is not a valuable one. In the ancient world, rhetoric, which I consider to be the uh, forebearer of communication was one of the three foundational studies. So when we look at a rhetorical analysis of the document, uh, I think it's reasonable to say that, that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, wrote it from the city of Rome where he was under house arrest while awaiting trial. Uh, we, we can see in subscripts on a lot of ancient copies of Philemon Colossians and Ephesians, um, which all have similar content themes and, and seem to have been written at the same time. Uh, several of the ancient copies have subscript, meaning that the, the scribe was putting stuff on there that he, didn't, he wasn't intending anybody to think was part of the original. Um, a lot of them say that they are from Rome. Uh, a few of the copies of Colossians say that they were ascribed by Tychius and Onesimus, who uh, are mentioned in these. And, uh, and all this connects, if you go to the Wednesday uh, Read Acts and Eat Dessert Core, um, that Luke, uh, the author of Acts, switches to the, the pronoun we when he talks about Paul ending up in Rome. So we have, a, we have a pretty solid understanding of that stretch of early church history. So this trip ends with, with Paul on house arrest in Rome where he is uh, there for a while. Um, 
He writes these letters probably in the sequence of Philemon and then Colossians and then Ephesians. Uh, and Ephesians is likely not specifically to the church in Ephesus, but rather to the churches in Asia, which the Roman uh, term, the Roman province of Asia is what we would now call Turkey. Um, the reason that we might suspect it's not specifically or only for Ephesus is that Paul started the church in Ephesus, and yet in this letter, unlike a lot of his other letters, there's no personal greetings, there's no talking about a specific issue. So um, it's probably that he wrote Philemon to Philemon about this guy Onesimus in the same area, um, and, and in thinking about that issue, he wrote the letter uh, to the church in Colossae, um, and then thinking about the broader issues, uh, but not the specific um, problems with a, a mystic Judaist uh, movement in Colossae, he wrote the letter that we call Ephesians to all the churches in that area. Um, in fact, you can find ancient copies uh, of this letter with a blank space where Ephesus would be. So they wrote out copies, and then they left a blank space for the city name. So you had some going to Ephesus, and then somebody would fill in Laodicea. We could write to the saints in Seattle. Um, this is not uncommon to do with the letters. Even ones that were really specifically written to uh, a specific church, they would recopy them and, um, and send them on. So what we find in this letter in general is uh, exhortations to this whole section of churches that are connected both socially and spiritually, and they all fall under Paul's kind of coaching tree. Um, so Colossae wasn't founded by, the church at Colossae wasn't founded by Paul, but it was founded by Epaphras, who was trained by Paul and was one of his associates. Um, what you find in this area um, is what the, at that time was referred to as an Asiatic uh, audience. Now we usually, I mean, I don't even think of Turkey as being part of Asia usually when I use that term. But for the Roman Empire, that was Asia. And what that meant was not Chinese like me, um, but um, Hellenistic. Uh, so this is the Greek half of the Roman Empire. Not that Greek wasn't spoken throughout the Roman Empire, but this is the more culturally Greek and, um, and following in that tradition more. So you have a predominantly Gentile audience for this letter, uh, a Hellenistic versus a Latin uh, attitude, uh, which I think as an aside, probably led a lot to the eventual split of the Orthodox and Catholic churches. Uh, you have what seems to be a pretty educated audience. This is a, a highly uh, literate example of Paul's writing, which he is uh, you know, notable for that anyway. And you also have a good chunk of Jewish, Jewish Christians that he's writing to. Uh, Josephus says that they're was a large group of, of Jews here dating back to the Babylonian exile. They were resettled in that area. Um, I see a couple of you looking at me like this is getting dry. We'll, we'll come around, but I think this is important. So this, uh, this letter, uh, as opposed to, say, Romans, is epideictic rhetoric versus forensic rhetoric, meaning... Um, 
a, a display kind of speech versus a uh, legal kind of speech. Um, and you'll find that for the more Latin audiences, Paul uses a lot of uh, legal type language. His, his picture of justification in a lot of his things is a courtroom picture. Whereas this kind of a speech was used at maybe a funeral to say nice things about, or I, I suppose it could have been used to say bad things about the, the dead person too, but that's not as common. Uh, also very big for pep talks. So a general before battle would use this type of rhetoric. Or uh, somebody would open up a, an athletic thing like the Olympics with this kind of a speech. Some of the things that you, I don't know if you noticed or not, for those of you that read, sentences run on as long as you can say it with one breath. So if you look at this, uh, if you look at this passage, it's made up of about three sentences for the whole chapter. Um, it's very important, to, I think, to account for the style of this because it, uh, I think sometimes with our approach to uh, literature, we say, oh, well, this this word here, and they compare it to uh, another book written by an entirely different author in an entirely different situation, and say, well, this must mean this, whereas I think what we find is Paul writing to a specific audience. So one of the things about this kind of rhetoric is that it has a lot of redundancy. In verse 3, it says, blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing. He's got three blessings in one, in one clause. Um, in verse 6, um, I, in our translation it says the grace that he has blessed us with but you're looking at the same root so grace which he has graced to us uh, in verse 18 he has a, a long rhyming thing so he, he invents this, this phrase the eyes of your heart would be opened and the eyes of your heart I'm going to mangle this because I've not taken Greek but pephetesmenus uh, tus ophthalmus so the only reason that that phrase is there so he can get that, that rhyming. Repeating words, repeating sounds. Um, verse 19 through 21, the, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that he is at work in us for the power of doing this. Uh, a lot of um, things that are for the sake of, of driving something home in a more oratorical and emotional manner than, say, the way that he writes in Romans. Another thing about this, to me, is that it really resonates with the ancient Hebrew poetry where you see in Psalms, of course, we don't know if it would rhyme anyway if we're reading it in a translation, but if you look at Psalms, there's a lot of repetition of, of images or concepts rather than repetition of sounds. So I think that this, uh, this style was common for the area, um, and for the Hellenistic uh, segment of the population in the Roman Empire. Uh, and it also seems like it would work pretty well for the Jewish Christians in that group. So two takeaways from that, maybe slightly dry section. Number one, I think this is a great example of Paul doing what he says, of becoming all things to all people. He's communicating in an appropriate way to his audience. Had he sent the same letter that he sent to the church in Rome, uh, to these churches, it would not have resonated as well, it would not have been as powerful uh, for them to receive. The second thing I think we need to take from this is that we need to uh, always account for the original audience and intent 
when we're trying to understand a piece of scripture. Because otherwise we can get very uh, wrapped up in 20th or 21st century understandings of why somebody used this particular uh, Greek word that might be very divorced from their uh, initial intent. Um, so that addresses how Paul was talking, but what was he saying? Um, number one, he's praising God, and he's doing that primarily through uh, a purposeful remembering of what God has done. So it's an aspect of this kind of, of rhetoric that you, um, that you praise uh, either a, a pagan god or, or the deceased or a, a politician or something, but it's also significantly the backbone of the Jewish religion. Why do we praise God? How, does he, how do we know that he loves us? Because of what he has done in the past for us, of how he has saved us. So, Paul says, praise to God, the Father of our Lord, uh, because he chose, he adopted, he redeemed, he sacrificed, he revealed, he revealed himself, and he revealed his plan to us. Another thing that he's doing is affirming unity between kind of the two segments uh, of the churches here. A lot of commentators say that the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus in the opening greeting, uh, that's kind of code for the saints are the Jewish Christians, the set-apart ones. So, you know, the nation of Israel was the, the people that God had set apart for himself. And now, those who are faithful to Christ Jesus who have been grafted onto that. Um, it's pretty often proposed in commentaries that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians because there was this fracturing um, because of Jewish mystery cults kind of getting in there. So if you look in, in Colossians, there's talk about the worship of angels. Uh, and I don't know a ton about uh, Kabbalism, but you get some pretty interesting um, and esoteric stuff when you get out of the mainstream of kind of rabbinical Judaism that we might be more familiar with uh, and into these mystery cults. So. Uh, a lot of writers say that Paul wrote Colossae specifically talking about that, and then he said, you know, maybe in some of the other churches they're not having that, uh, that particular problem, but it's still a, uh, a thing that affects the unity of the body, and uh, he's also writing about the ways that you just live as a church, uh, and that those themes came to mind, and so he wrote this more general one. Um, so, to a split crowd... He is saying, we are both part of this plan, this eternal plan that God had from the beginnings of creation and he has brought together under the headship of Christ. So towards the end, uh, you see, it talks about brought together under one head or in some translations, under one administration. And that term's actually taken from accounting where you're getting all your numbers and lining them up and making them all add up to one, to one sum. And he says that the proof that we have, instead of two groups, have become brought into one is the Holy Spirit. So in verse 14, uh, it says that the guarantee, and that guarantee um, is like a down payment. So you, you, know, you are reserving your spot. So we have been brought together in Christ, and we know it because we have the earnest money has already been paid uh, for us in the Holy Spirit being with us. We're all brought together in Christ. Something uh, significant about the book of Ephesians um, and about this way of uh, organizing a talk is that Paul here is, 
is not arguing very much for a change of direction or a new idea. In, in other places, he's being um, more dialectical. He's saying, you might think this, but, but this is this. Here he's just saying, hey, this is the way it is. We all know this. He's writing, he's writing two established churches in this case. And so he's saying, I'm just trying to remind you of what you already are holding to, to stay on track and, and to be the church. And the proof of uh, that all of this is true is that Christ is risen. So, what, what does that mean for us now? Number one, this is God's eternal plan. This is God's eternal plan. This was God's plan, plan A, from before the creation of the world. It is easy, I think, for us to, um, you know, maybe we, we read the Old Testament and we're like, oh, so God had a plan and then Adam and Eve screwed up. Uh, so he had to come up with a contingency plan. And then uh, he kind of went around and was like, oh, maybe, maybe Abraham. Well, Abraham was kind of a dummy. He didn't, he didn't follow through on this stuff. He lied about this and that. So uh, God had to modify the plan. Uh, and then, oh, we got to get him. They went to Egypt. We got to get him back. This is not a situation of God scrambling to figure out what to do because we messed up his plan. We, we don't have enough power to mess up God's plan. All of this is God's plan A, and we are a part of it. He talks about the elect here, and I'm not going to delve very deeply into the different understandings of that. If somebody wants to take me out for coffee, we can talk about... Uh, Calvin's position or James Arminius' position uh, until the cows come home. What I am going to say this morning is that what it says is that in Christ, we were chosen before the foundations of the world. So as part of plan A, Jesus was given an inheritance of his church. We are the chosen bride for Jesus Christ from before creation. Now, as I said, some people take that to say that each one of us was chosen as part of that. Some people say that the church, the important thing for this morning is that the church is Christ's chosen bride from before all time. Take me a coffee, we'll talk about what it means to become part of the church. But the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that what was planned from the very beginning has come to pass in God's people here and in other gatherings uh, around the world this morning. We have been adopted, and it's significant. I think that Paul uses this uh, of, of both groups, so you can see a shifting pronoun through this chapter. But he says that we've been adopted, both Jewish and Gentile believers. Maybe we could uh, adapt that to our current day of um, those of us with religious backgrounds and non-religious backgrounds. Whether we came up in the church or whether we came to it later in life, um, we, we all became God's children by a process of adoption. We both needed to be adopted. We weren't just automatically in. So there was a, a stretch of time and for a lot of the people of Israel, they said, we're Abraham's sons. We don't have anything to worry about. And various prophets and Jesus himself said, no, that's, that's not how it ever was supposed to work. That Abraham himself 
was, was brought in by God's choice, not because he had some, some basic right to it. So whatever our background is, we, we needed to be adopted into the family, but whatever our background is, we have been adopted into the family, and we are truly his children. John Stott said that a, a tentative answer for people who question like the whole thing, like why would God create humanity if he knew it was going to have all these things, you know, or why, you know, why would he put um, temptation before uh, the first people if he knew they were going to fall? And he says a tentative answer to that, not definitive because it, it really isn't definitive in the scripture, but something that we uh, could think deeply about is that we have come to a much uh, higher place than just the uh, most favored creature. Instead of just the most favored thing that God made, he has uh, now made us his children. So none of these things are, well, I hope that none of these things are new for you guys to hear. None of these things were new for Paul's original audience to hear. What he's saying is, you should know this. How great God is, how rich his love and mercy are. And if you don't think that that's a big deal, it's the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead is the power that uh, creates and fills the church. And what, what is that power in us for? It's, it's for something. So I, I think hopefully we're all on the same page here is that God's not doing this just so that we can hang out here and, and have uh, carrot cake, although it was tasty. Um, the power that, that raised Christ from the dead is in his church, in the person of the Holy Spirit, so that we can be Jesus' tangible body in the world. If you look in the, uh, in the end of the chapter, it says that God has brought all things under him. So, you know, there's that big list, and it's a very, um, it's a very strong example of how this... Uh, this type of rhetoric works. Um, Fall above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the representation of that guy. That guy who is above everything is represented by us to make a difference in the world. So... um, I have three questions for you to read and think about for a minute here and then hopefully maybe write down or snap a picture with your, with your phone and, and think about later on. Number one, and, and I recognize that this is a pretty leading question, so how difficult is it for you to believe that you are a part of God's plan A? Hopefully it's not difficult at all. Hopefully that's something that you have internalized and are confident in. Um, I think for a lot of us, it's more difficult. Like, uh, lucky that I sneaked into that thing that God was doing with other people. Um, number two, are the eyes of your heart, this, this phrase that Paul coined just for this occasion, are your eyes of your heart open to the hope that he has made you fully his child? Or do you sometimes think, well, I'm the redheaded stepchild here? Um, no offense to any gingers who might hear the podcast. Um, number three, the, the, the really important one, 
if the power that raised Christ from the dead is in you, as Paul says it is, then what is one tangible way that Jesus is calling you to touch the world for him? This great power, the power of, of creation, the power of recreation, dwells in the church corporately and through each of us. What are we supposed to be doing with that? So I'm going to pause one minute for you. Think about those things. Maybe write them down. Um, but come up with a little bit of an answer for those because I might pigeonhole you uh, after we're done and see what you said. All right. So let's wrap up. Whatever our background, in Jesus we have been chosen, adopted, and sealed into God's family. And we need to always remember what that means about us and our lives. I'm going to read the last three verses uh, of our chapter uh, from the message version. All this energy, the power that raised Christ from the dead in the previous verse, all this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of this all, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. Thanks for listening to today's message. To find out more about The Bridge or to listen to any message from our complete archive, visit thebridgeseattle.org.